Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures Podcast. It's for clients, investors, our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. For the next few episodes, we are going to be talking about rogue waves, the unpredictable disruptions brought by the quantum changes in connectivity and digital transformation. As investors, we hope to understand which companies and sectors will be highly adaptable in this age, and even which companies and sectors might help us through it, as the digital fairing companies did in the first portion of the digital revolution helping us migrate from one world to another. In the next few episodes, we'll dive deeper into what rogue waves are, and importantly, along with our friends, we will start developing a toolkit for increased understanding of how this will all relate to our investments and what new tools we may want. Our goal, to ride the waves. So let's get going. Poza is a friend of Coburn Ventures who happens to be an audience researcher. What a cool job. She sparked a topic at one of our gatherings with this idea that the metaverse is already here in gaming and we can use what we know about gaming to grow a better understanding about the possible pathways for Web3. Now there's a lot we could spend our time on with regard to Web3, all with pretty low visibility, I think. But it's worth a dive every once in a while, because as our friend Peter Esperson says, you know, 95% of the activity, hype, and talk around Web3 will fade away, but 5% will change everything. Let's jump in. Kelly and I moved to Pleasantville 25 years ago. We didn't realize that it was such a gold mine. It's been an awesome place to live. One of the diamond, like lottery winning benefits is through time, I got to meet four sisters, Christina, Danielle, Jamie, and Amanda, all who are like second family to our family. Um, Amanda runs the CFC. Danielle connected me to Christina. Like it just goes on and on. I've been so fortunate just in a personal basis. And they're all like geniuses in their own way. They're all amazing writers. And Christina is probably, maybe, I'm going to say the most commercial of any of them. <clears throat> I think that's fair to say, actually. Danielle might give her a run for her money, but Christina started selling steak knives at age 15. I, she's going to get bored of this story, but she was like <laughs> the number one <clears throat> steak knife seller at I'm age I'm proud 15. of this story. That's okay. <clears throat> I am. You like I be. think it's amazing. When I heard that, I was like, okay, that tells me so much. Talk about cultural signal and you know, Jamie would not be selling steak knives. <clears throat> um, Amanda would want to know what the steak knives were going to be used to do, and then she wouldn't sell them. And Daniel would say, mm, sounds like a pretty good idea. So Christina's got this, like, lear- all amazing learners, too. And so just across time, we just kind of connect and reconnect. And then 
over the last three years, four years, Christine, I've been felt so lucky that some of the paths that you're going on and the things that interest you, now I benefit in that way too. Um, should I say one quick note on the steak knives though, is that the reason that I got into that was because I love to cook and I firmly believe that oh these gosh. knives really do benefit people. And this is not a sales pitch, but they do say you're more likely to get hurt by a dull knife than a sharp knife because you press harder. So I never felt that I was selling. I felt like I was showing people a really good product and they could buy it if they if they saw a benefit to it or they didn't have to. <laughs> but I'll, I uh, let, let's yeah. stay here for a half a second because that completely sold, uh, stood out to me when I first started to talk to Danielle, connected me to you. It's totally stood out because sales itself is, there's a pejorative to it. And so steak knife salesperson, you could go, oh my God, she was a scam artist at age 15. Who is this woman? And then I met you and I was like, what's the favorite part of the job? I still remember this conversation. And it was going inside people's kitchens, being invited into their kitchen and just seeing what they did mm -hmm. without agenda. And I found that like, like who does that at age 15 or 16? I was trying to, in quote, scam people to have them like, let me shovel their drive somehow or paint their house or something. And here she let her favorite part was just being with people, seeing what they did, not forcing an agenda. And I do think, Bryn, that is the pathway to the next generation of great sales. And that's almost going to be a requirement 25 years from now. So in some ways, I think, Christina, your orientation is way ahead of like where the culture is going. That reminds me of something I always remember from that Blue Man Group show that they do. They do it around the world, but we saw it in Disney World. But they said that the best way to, to resonate with someone is to create something with them. And I love that because in the performance, they, they didn't speak at all. It was all like mime. And yet it was so obvious that they were like making a picnic or something on the table. And at the end, there was such a sense of community because they created that together. And I feel like that's what I always really loved about the sales job is because I was sitting in people's kitchens and I would ask them like, what do you like to cook? And sometimes it was making a salad, chopping a salad. Sometimes it was cheeses and they needed something to, you know, cut their cheese with. Uh, you know, it always varied, but it was like very personal. And I was there like learning how they do it and creating it with them and bringing my side to it, which were these different types of knives. And then at the end of it, it always felt like, you know, I, I met really cool people doing that. And, and the sale just sort of fell out at the end or didn't, but it was natural. And you sitting in someone's kitchen, your ability to not reflect some type of judgment or them not to feel a judgment about what they're doing in their kitchen, I could imagine was like, that's sky high for people. And somehow you put them in a place where, you know, they, they trusted you with all of that and that you weren't gonna be like looking over their shoulder. I'm guaranteed that all of this setup is gonna tie completely into some of what we're talking about. Well, <laughs> I'm... I would bet that that curiosity and openness um, and interest that you have, interest is maybe better than just pure curiosity, has resonates in your current role. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and some of the current research? Yeah, absolutely. So what I do now is I work in audience research, and I think a lot of it does have to do with that just kind of desire to understand people. Mm -hmm. um, 
I got this tattoo before I started this job, but I have a tattoo on my back that says everywhere is my school, everyone is my teacher. And I feel like I, I heard that quote from a guy on a bus in Cambodia who barely spoke English. And he was asking me about my country and you know the US and I was telling him little stories about what the culture is like here. And he was telling me what the culture is like in Cambodia. And when he got up to leave, he could, you know, he was looking for the words that he had. And he said, thank you for telling me about your country. I feel like everywhere I go is my school and everyone is my teacher. And I was like, those are the most profound words I've ever heard. And I would love to just dedicate my life living by that. You know, it's easier said than done, but it was just such a good way of thinking about what we can really learn when we listen to people. And a few years later, I started this job in audience research. Previously, I was in media and more of the marketing side of things. But now my job is to run surveys, run focus groups, interviews, ethnographies, segmentations with young people all over the world. So I'm basically in charge of hearing how young people are thinking and feeling and then using that information to better create content and brand partnerships and experiences in the world. So. I, uh, I guess it's safe to say, I love it. (laughs) So So. what was it in some of your current research or most recent research that you came up with this idea that gaming is the functioning metaverse. We don't need to talk about web three as something that we're just now starting to construct or that will be here in a few years. You're saying, no, it's already here. A and B, it's not really functioning in some of the negative ways that you might think. Tell us more about that idea. So we have obviously, we as in my company, but I think everybody now has heard the word metaverse a billion times. And everyone's sort of trying to figure out like, what do we do in the metaverse? And yet the definition of what the metaverse is, is actually being created as this thing is being built. And so we've done a few different studies on it and just kind of asked young people, you know, how do they feel about this emerging space? Are they interested in it? Are they skeptical? Are they curious? Have they purchased digital goods? Um, You know, would they purchase digital goods? But as you can see, a lot of these are sort of almost like um, hypothesizing because right now it's all based on this future idea. And so one of the studies that we did that was my favorite was actually looking at gaming, which feels almost like old because gaming compared to this metaverse, the metaverse feels much more exciting, but gaming is the metaverse in action and has been for a really long time. But the kids, these young people that play games or older people, people who play games, they don't see that space as being in the metaverse. They're just there. And that I think is what this like metaverse will be it'll just be an extension of our reality and not some big escape where you put on these oculus goggles and suddenly you're you know in a totally different world the way they use that will just be you know an extension of of their day that kind of ties back into our thought in the change function that people generally don't like revolutions they like extensions investors like to talk about revolutions. Like there's this whole new world because that would suggest a gigantic TAM and sometimes there are, but more so that 
people like an extension built on an extension, built on an extension, built on an extension. Then all of a sudden, 10 years later, you're in a totally different space. You didn't even note it. That's such a good way to put even what I have learned about gaming. I mean, I'm not a gamer, so I was able to run this study completely without any bias because I've never, I don't really play video games. But what I learned about it is that, you know, they entered this gaming space for reasons that I can also talk about. But as they've been there, the game has extended their ability to create, to build a sense of community, to connect with their friends. So as you just said, Pip, now when they pick an avatar to play a game, they don't just pick the default, they can customize that avatar to look like them. And so what we've seen is that even in terms of representation in a video game, those that identify as non-white feel more represented in video games because they actually are co-creating who they see in the space. So they can choose how their avatar looks. They can choose if it's a female gamer, they can do that customization. So it's sort of, yeah, it didn't like show up as this big revolutionary concept gaming, but it has extended the ability to feel more real over time. And I guess that's made it possible to kind of spend so much time there. I think it's interesting. You're really talking about some of the benefits and they are extensions of the benefits of the internet, right? Connecting. If you're someone growing up in um, Salt Lake City, where I grew up, and you feel like you're in this homogenous culture, it's so exciting to be able to connect with people who are different or read about things that are different. That's what I had available to me at the very, very beginnings of the internet. That was it. And even that was very liberating, very inspiring. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine what it's like for people who are in identities that they may love and be proud of, but present some difficulties for them in the current reality that we have, <laughs> right? To be able to go into another place and be freed of that. Wow, that must be quite healing even, you know, or even just provide a, a release valve if nothing else. What are some of the other things that surprised you that you thought were beneficial about gaming as the metaverse or, or just gaming? We don't have to mix those two up entirely. What people value in gaming are the things that we learned to really value over the past couple of years. So what that really has been, and we've run what we call the youth in pandemic tracking series, where we surveyed people all over the world for you know, five different pulses over the course of the two years. And what we saw is that creativity was booming. People were being more creative in every aspect of their life from the way that they prepared food to the way they designed their homes to the way they made food for themselves and their family. Mm. We also saw, of course, and everyone can relate to this, that connection became incredibly invaluable. And we all realized the importance of connecting with one another, whether that was digitally or in person, and then community. So we know that everyone now is really supporting local businesses and wanting to feel closer to these smaller groups and these more intimate groups that are around them. And so we went when we ran this gaming study, a lot of what we heard is that gaming actually offers those three things. Um, so there's creativity and they can use their creative intelligence to design their avatar, to design their entire world. A lot of them have like homes within their games that they personally design. There's definitely a sense of connection. When we were shadowing people play video games, they'll you know have their headsets on and they talk to their friends as if they're sitting next to them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, most of them actually said, Gen Z in particular, that they hang out with their friends more in video games than in the real world and that they see it as the same thing, which I also thought was very interesting. Um, and then community. So you have, of course, the people, the core people you play with, but then there's these surrounding pockets of community on different social apps like Twitch or you know, Discord, Reddit, and mm-hmm. apps that I don't even personally use, but you can tell that they, they really feel connected to the people there. We started using the word in 2006, hyper-personalization. I think creativity is just an extension of hyper-personalization in so many ways. And even down to what is my identity in this space? And to Bryn's point, um, can I have a different experience with a different identity than the one that I have in the physical world? The second thing that pops to me is how often we'll say real world as if this isn't a real world, Mm -hmm. that it's virtual. And us, we're right now, we're on Zoom together and I could see Bryn and I could see Christina. We have this overlay that that's not real. And I think when that's broken and people, I'm just guessing because of other things that we think about, when that barrier boundary is broken and people drop that orientation, then they move into a space that it's natural. It's just a natural extension of humans kind of continuing to evolve and develop. It's, a, it's not viewed as something weird. Does that, either of those comments? I'm thinking about, about my 11 year old, the two things he loves to do are video gaming and Legos. And the judgment that I put over video gaming and, you know, I would say like, oh yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not, I don't like the look of it, the sitting on the couch (laughs) for a long time. Um, Whereas he'll play Legos for a long time, but he's moving around. He has to do something to get the, the actually physically reach the Lego so there's something with that, that judgment I put on the video games is not the same judgment I put on the Lego just because I like to see some movement as his mom. And that, that's the thing that breaks down for me is the physical health. Did you get into anything like that with the um, surveys or because I know mental health, it was actually everything was scoring quite well. One of the things that I would love to do, and I would be remiss if I didn't say this, that while I have heard all these things in the findings, I don't, I I share that same skepticism with you actually. (laughs) Um, And I'm not, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of how truly good this is for mental health, but in the survey, yeah, I mean, most of them will say that they use gaming to release stress, release tension and, you know, their day and just kind of unwind with their friends. Hmm. And I can't help but wonder what's really happening inside of the human brain. And so this experience right now that we're having on Zoom is real because, I mean, like you said, Pip, it's not, it's not fake. <laughs> it's still <laughs> part of real life, but it is different. And you know, we're already thinking about Gen Alpha, which is, is crazy at, at work. We're thinking, you know, what's the next generation? And what we can kind of tell is that they're very conscious of the way they use digital media. Um, and this is more like younger kids in general, because Gen A. Yeah, gosh, when is Gen, like when is Gen, what's the breakdown with Gen Alpha? Gen Alpha is like 12 and under. So they're very young. We're not, you know, we're not doing any hardcore research with that group yet, but we're thinking you can, about- You can have um, my kids. I'll hand them over to you. <laughs> 
But we're thinking about how their millennial parents have raised them, even some of their Gen Z parents and the world that they're growing up in. Like this is a generation that is not only surrounded by digital media, but is going to be surrounded by Web3 and the metaverse. What we do here with Gen, the younger Gen Zs a lot is that they will put like timers on their for their screen time. And they're really conscious of like cutting themselves off because they know that they can't spend all of their time doing one thing. Just like I wouldn't as a kid, you know, be on my swing set for 12 hours of the day. I might be on it for like three and then go do something else. They might play video games for three and then go do something else. Um, what the parallel to jump in? It's like so many things are, but this is so helpful, Christina. I'm thinking corollary is more like the phone. I don't know about Bryn or what have you, but people growing up in a prior generation were kind of thought that they really, what they really wanted was their own phone in their own room was like, oh my God, I don't have to be on a phone call down in the family space. And, but I don't think that was considered not real. I think that was totally real. It was just a different venue. It was different mechanism. So we have this, I think what's going through my mind and particularly post the, 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 during the pandemic, so many of older people wanted things to go back into the office. And when you'd ask them why, they'd say, well, you're more productive. You're like, you collaborate better. You know, you store those relationships. Like, and I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. I think you generate relationships. Creativity can be done online just as well. Yes, there's benefits from being in the office, but I think we're misguided as what they are. And what you ticked off was creativity, let's call that collaboration, relationship, community. Those are the things that older people tend to associate with we're going to be in a physical place together mm. when actually we're in a physical place together gen tends to generate a lot of isolation and loneliness because your connection and relationships aren't blah 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 it's almost like you're ticking the boxes on three things that the older generation has a tremendous bias actually can't exist there that is tremendously unlocking in a human sense like if you're if you're right let's say you're right and all your like that is some of the best news we've ever had. But the older Wait, generation- Which element, that, Pip, that- That creativity, collaboration, relationship, and community can be so profoundly um, experienced, not, not, not BS, like real, mm -hmm. can be experienced in this other world, let's call it, not a non-real world, but this other spaces, that's some of the best news we'd ever had because that can bring the world together. If we have to rely on in-person gatherings, we have to walk in, oh my God, that is such a, that's such bad news because how are we even gonna do that? So it's just really fascinating to me that, Christine, that these three critical points that popped out of your research is 180 degrees opposite of a lot of people that think these things can only happen in person. And I think that, how they are using these things in the metaverse, if it can impact the way they are in out of the metaverse, I wouldn't say in the real world, <laughs> for good, then, then great. But I don't know how positively it will always influence how they are in the real world. And an example of that is one of the girls we spoke to said that she dyed her hair pink on her avatar. And in a way it helped her kind of get used to feeling what it would be like to wear pink hair because she wanted to do it with the real hair, but that's obviously a much bigger commitment. 
on an avatar, you could just change it out if you're like, eh, actually, you know, I don't, I don't love it. <laughs> and so a lot of them would tell us that who they are in a game actually influences who they are in the real world. And maybe that's a positive example of it. Like, let me try this out because I would like to be more creative and experimental and, and try on new identities in the real world. But the other side to it is that we become creatures of habit. So what we get used to, if we get used to only interacting in a digital space, now when it comes to speaking to those people in person, it's like our physical bodies don't even know how to be there because we're used to only using our eyes or our hands or you know just like th through a little box in front of us. Um, so that's where I get, I get, I don't know, yeah, skeptical, I guess, and just being conscious of it. And I think why I did like this study is that a lot of times we present it to brands. And I think that's so important because the brands, the game developers, these Web3 developers, if they can think about all these different positive and negative potentials of the future, and we just hope and pray that they have the intention of creating a better future for humanity in mind, then hopefully how this thing comes about does more good for the world than social media maybe has done in cases where it has caused a, a, a downside to mental health. You know, maybe there's a way that that could have been created better so that it was mostly used as a tool for good as opposed to an addictive, you know, screen. And sometimes the marketplace will allow that. Like I think of the difference between some of the earlier dating apps and then uh, Tinder and then um, what is it, Bumble, that was created more with women in mind after seeing what was happening with the dating apps in, in the early days. So sometimes there is a marketplace option for that, but uh, not always. I think you're hitting on such an amazing tension. And this comes up in sci-fi a lot or anyone who's read or seen the movie of Ready Player One. The big tension is because they do a lot of that um, trying on different identities, right? And there's there's a, a point in the book, at least, where you don't know which, you know, what race everyone is. And that's this interesting, it's an interesting and intriguing part um, when all that's revealed. And the tension is we, we don't know how to solve that final bridge, like you're saying. So if, and that's the question I keep having, if, if you have your identity formation in the digital world, you're able to try on lots of different things, do you still know how to then go connect with people and have those moments of vulnerability? Because you don't have, the whole point is you don't have to be vulnerable in the metaverse at this point, like it doesn't seem like it's a society that's that layered yet in terms of being rejected or kicked it out of things for trying on different identities like you would in the real world. I loved in Ready Player One that we go through the whole book or, or movie, but the whole book that the, the player is falling in love with the avatar. And she keeps saying, you're in love with my avatar. I don't look like this. And so you, like there's this buildup and then he's fallen in love with the person and the attributes and that like, what a beautiful part to that movie. Bryn, I remember um, uh, separately, Eamon was uh, big and Tucker were big into nation states like 12 years ago. I come home one day on a Saturday, beautiful day out and Eamon's there and I'm ready to like, just say, get outside, you know, or something like that. I come in and I feign being like that progressive parent. So I said, 
what do you like, like with that little edge in my voice i don't think he picked up what do you get out of nation state because he'd play it a lot he loved it like what does it teach you and he's like he goes well um communication um strategy marketing you have to market your ideas da, 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 da. he goes through that i was like that's exactly what I want being taught at school that's not taught at school. <laughs> so I just shut up and I go, oh, man, like, as if I had no problem with it to begin with when I started off. So there's like these, these lessons that we're learning, they may, may be through this area, but also Bryn, I think back in the other world, not the real world, and I'm not sure if people are really good at being vulnerable anyway. So maybe, our, our, maybe we'll raise the, the level a little bit, I don't know. But I don't think there's a lot of downside. It's funny to me that this whole thing, video game thing, started really broke out with Pong in like 1979. <laughs> and it was just like, we'd have to be in the same place. And like, there's, we're hitting a table tennis back and forth. And now we're talking about everything in life is somehow in this space or replicated or enhanced or played with or creative. And we're getting community out of it. That is mind blowing of where we've gone. And to port that up another 15 years, like, holy cow, that sounds very cool to me. That's such an interesting, it has me thinking about how much we show our personalities based on what we create. So you think of when you have someone over your house, how much your space, the way you designed your space, what it says about you, you know, you're like little things. I have a lot of plants. I have, you know, my my little things. And it tells a lot about your personality because you've created that. And in a game, right. It's like such a, it's been such an evolution since Pong, I guess, where you just were standing on other sides of a table. But now like one of the girls was like, Oh, I'm going to go over to, to Kelly's house. This is in the game. And she was playing uh, the Sims and you literally go into a whole house of your friends and you can see how they design that space so there's these little signals of personality that are being revealed and it's not tied solely to what the person can't control which is how they were physically born but they can control you know how they design their their avatar their hair color in the space or their their house and they can control all those things and so it allows them to kind of be more i guess expressive in that sense I remember there was the um, a test at, I think it was <clears throat> the New York Philharmonic or something like that, where they started to do, they did this test where the auditions, you couldn't see the person. And it made this huge change in how the, um, uh, the people in charge of the auditions, what they came to. And it, it showed a tremendous bias in the system against women. And it's just thinking about like, how can we like retrain and understand our biases back into the in quotes real world through these methodologies. Christina, my last question for you is today, what would you change significantly in your approach, strategy, whatever it would be as a 15 year old selling steak knives? <laughs> What would I change? Relative to your experience of when you crushed it as a real 15, 16 year old. Um, 
I guess I would tell the story of my future self, which is now what, 10 years later. And I have my knife block right over there and I use them every day. So I would, I would open with that. I'd say, you know, (laughs) when I was 20 years old, I spent, gosh, less than a thousand because I got a discount, but I invested big time in my knives (laughs) because I saw the future value. So I would incorporate that, I guess, into my, into my pitch. (laughs) Do you think you could be as successful in a non-in-person space or in the metaverse selling steak knives? And is it that connection that you're intentionally trying to create through your relationship or how would you go about doing it? Because you're saying kind of what we're hearing is creativity, relationship, and community go up. Your TAM increases because you don't have to be, and you know, you can be more in quotes efficient with your time. Would actually your steak sales, steak knife sales go up? other than to your sister, Amanda, who of course is, you know, a vegetarian. That is such a good question. And I'm envisioning what it would be like if instead of walking with my bag that had leather, rope, scissors, all these weird things I was going to use to do a demonstration, instead of knocking on someone's door and sitting down with them in their kitchen and like feeling that space with them, if I was instead in, in my kitchen and I was just with a laptop, and I saw them through that and did it through a screen. I, I would have to honestly say that wouldn't be more as effective. And that is part of my, my skepticism, my personal bias on this matter, which is that it's just, it, it's real, it, but it is different. And so I don't know, I would have to test it out. Maybe I'd be wrong. Maybe it's, maybe it is totally doable, but I think that as this space, this whole metaverse comes about, it's important to acknowledge that it is different and there are aspects of it that we can use for good, but it can't just be driven by the dollars and the attention and captivating people and keeping them in this space because that's where the money is. It has to be done consciously and understanding that it is different. And so you want to have it be a place where people can be creative and have make connections and form communities but you also want to cut that off at a certain point or use that as like a jumping off point for other experiences that do happen in person or in nature. That, that's my personal hope for this, uh, <laughs> this some emerging space, I guess. Into the deeper implications of the metaverse in this conversation. So I wanna start with my first point which is to recount Christina's first assertion that gaming is the functioning metaverse. I felt we almost skipped over such an important observation as we went deeper. And I heard interesting echoes between Christina's findings and Angie Dalton's observations from episode 100 that Web3 can enable powerful human needs to be creative, to be in connection with others, and to find supportive community without trapping and advertising. You know, Angie would say extraction of that type is dead. And my ad is that extraction could be more difficult and hopefully it's dead. I don't like to be extracted from. But what about plain old manipulation? You know, that may be a subtopic for another day. And finally, what a neat tension to move into. Can what we value in gaming, creativity, connection, and community increase our ability to be vulnerable to try new things? Can it be a valuable training ground? 
And then on the other side, you know, Rob Rose likes to say, you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. So here's the shipwreck element. On the other side, what new weird syndromes might we speak about in a few years to describe people who can interact digitally, but not in the social norms and unconscious body language that humans rely on outside of a digital world? So many, many more questions to explore. Thank you, Christina, and thanks for sharing that interaction in Cambodia. Everywhere is my school, everyone is my teacher. What a great spirit to lead with, especially when entering exciting, uncharted territory. Thanks for listening.